I remember, I was kind of reminded this past week in a conversation I had of, of my first speeding ticket, which that statement right there tells you that's the problem <laughs> if it was my first one. It didn't happen until I graduated from college at, uh, after several years of driving. and um, I still blame, blame my brother-in-law because I was following him. But nonetheless, I was the one who got, got stopped. And uh, I was in Chatham County. Nice straightaway there on 64 as you're going on the, on the lake there, Jordan Lake. And, uh, you know, the deal is you, you get this ticket and uh, you have a court date. And it's usually months from the point you get the ticket. Months. And so the thing is, I happened to uh, move back home for a little while. I was in my, my first year of seminary and I had this little bit of independence where I, where it occurred to me, you know, if this had happened just a few months ago, I wouldn't have told my parents about this. But now that I'm living at home, I feel like uh, there's some sense within me that I need to tell my parents. And I didn't really want to tell my parents because I knew what would happen if I told my parents. And I would be dealing with, uh, well, a long period of time of dad just continually to scold me about this. And I thought, you know, I just don't want to do that. So I spent months of just sitting there and, and just like, well, I'll tell them when I have to. And so, I, you know, if you get a ticket, one of the things, one of the nice perks about this is that you get all kinds of contacts from lawyers and you get these, these letters. And, and so I had to go out to the mail and be the first one to get the letter. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to, have to explain why I was getting letters from Chatham County, uh, and the lawyers there. And, and, uh, finally, you know, it was, it was the day before and I had to, had drive down to, to Chatham County to to make a, a plea for judgment. I kind of researched, figure out what I needed to do here, prayer for judgment, and and so I thought, you know, I've got to explain to my parents. You know, I, I, I got to leave tomorrow, and I got to explain to them where I'm going. I got to go early in the morning, and so I finally told my parents and said, you know, all right, <laughs> here's what I got to do, and uh, they were first astounded that I had a ticket, and then wondering why didn't you tell us? I said, well, because I didn't want to listen to your scolding. For six months. And dad made this comment that made, came true. He said, that's okay. You've had your conscience bothering you for six months. <laughs> and I thought, you know, he, he's right. It's, you know, it's, it's been doing just as much as what my dad would have been telling me. And it was going on, uh, in my own head. And, you know, for that period of months, six months or so, I was living in that dread. Just living in that dread. And I think that sometimes, we may have our life and we feel like we're living in a dread. We don't know what, but we're in dread of something. It could be dread of our past, of it coming up with, with you, as it was in my case. It could be a dread of what was coming in front of you, as is in my case as well. But it, it's some kind of dread. And, and one of the worst things that you can do is live in fear. Live in fear. And for the unbeliever, it's understandable. In fact, I don't have much to tell you if you do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior and and all that he says he is. I don't have much to tell you other than, you know what? Enjoy your fear. Enjoy your dread. Do the best you can. 
But for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, in fact, Jesus tells us this type of living should be put away from us. There is no need anymore to be living in dread. And so as we start 2009, our nation is wringing their hands, trying to figure out what's going to happen, what's what's going to be done in this year. What's going to happen in, in Israel and Gaza? My parents are over in Israel right now. I'm not wringing my hands over that. Uh, folks are wondering, well, what's going to happen with the economy? What's going to happen with the, with the politics? What's going to happen with the moral causes of our, uh, that we stand for? And we're wringing our hands. And we don't need to do that. I'm going to take you to back to Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 31. We're going to continue our study in that. I expect uh, it may be, it, it, we won't finish before May, uh, but with the book of Genesis. Uh, and so we may have some versions from time to time. But we're going back and, and I want to build up something because in this passage, it is working toward a climax with the character of Jacob. In fact, our next chapter, will will uh, look at that uh, climatic event between Jacob and God. And we find that Jacob is living in dread. He is living in fear. In fact, in this chapter, we're going to look at chapter 31, verses 17 through 55. There are two words repeated throughout this chapter. The word stolen, still, uh, are the word fear. Uh, you'll fe- see that. Fear and stolen. And you'll find that the stealing takes place because of fear. Because of fear. Uh, and that's often the case uh, when we are resorting to stealing is because we have a fear and we need to uh, do whatever we can to satisfy that fear, uh, even if it means stealing. And so I hope you understand that there are a lot of levels of stories, of themes in the book, in the books of the Bible. The overall theme, as you know, is God's story of, of bringing redemption to mankind and how he did that, did that through history. That is the overall message of the entire Bible, as well as the book of Genesis. But in his working to bring a redeemer, there are other sub-themes and sub-sub-themes. All right. As we look at Jacob, Jacob is the, the next line in the genealogy of which God will use in bringing up a redeemer through uh, people, through the Jews. But a sub-theme is God's working in Jacob's life. God's working in Jacob's life. And how he is bringing him around to trust in God. You need to understand, our lives are sub-themes. <laughs> All right, at best, our lives are sub-themes. And that the overall picture of our, of our life is to point to mankind, there is a Redeemer. And God's working in our hearts and lives is to uh, shape us and mold us so that we can proclaim that message clearly and joyfully to this world. And so God is working in Jacob's life. And Jacob is a difficult nut. He is a hard person uh, to come around and following the Lord. Uh, his name from the beginning meant supplanter or deceiver or somewhat of a con artist, a grasper of the hill. And we find that it is Jacob's tendency that when he wants to get things done, he looks at how he can do it, how in his mind, his mental scheming, he can accomplish these things, even the things of God. God will give him a word of command. He says, okay, I'll do that. And he'll look through his inventory strategies and pick out a strategy that he likes best to dupe other people and accomplishing the will of God. Note, the will of God is not just uh, what's accomplished, but how it is accomplished. The manner is important. And so 
We're going to see that God's working through Jacob. And, and Jacob, as I look at Jacob's life, it reminds me of the story of, of Mount Carmel. You remember the story where, where Elijah was challenging the, the Baal prophets and, and saying, you know what, God's going to call down fire. And just so you know that it's God and not just dry wood, we're going to put buckets of water on the sacrifice. You remember how you just put buckets and buckets and buckets of water. So there's a trench around it and it's filling up the trench. It was just unheard of. And then God just liked that fire. Well, I, I get the same story with Jacob. God said, I'm going to use Jacob. And just so you know, it's not Jacob. I'm going to show you in the word of God how Jacob is totally unusable. I'm going to just put dump buckets and buckets of water. Look at, look at how difficult and stubborn Jacob is. And yet God uses him. I'm going to tell you, when I read Jacob's life, it gives me great hope. It encourages me that if God can use Jacob, he can use me. He can use you. Uh, and so we're going to look at this. And uh, we're going to start with, with verse 17 going through 55. And way of review, just so you know, Jacob, he has fled his home because of his schemes, his plans, and his mom's. His brother wants to kill him. His dad really doesn't want him around and doesn't give him any kind of blessing and says, you just go. Or he, he gives him a trick, he gets a blessing, but not because he wants to, unknowingly. And then he says, you go find a wife, just get away. Go back to your mother's land, find a wife. And so that's what he does, some, uh, well, hundreds of miles away. Finds uh, a couple, uh, one beautiful woman. But uh, in the plan of getting her, he gets duped by his, uh, his uncle into marrying the older sister, uh, and so he works, uh, consequently, over 20 years for his uncle Laban. He, he gains Rachel, he gains Leah, and he gains their handmaids. And there are multiple children being born in all this time. Uh, now he's working for, uh, for his own money, his own household, and, and he's having to dupe Laban because uh, Laban's trying to dupe him. It's just, it's ugly. And finally, in, as we come to Genesis chapter 31, as we get to verse 3, he gets a word from God. Remember, he got a word from God going to Bethel, but that was 20, 20 years ago uh, in this story. And he had got a promise from God that God was going to bring him back to the land, that God was going to be with them. There's the stairway to heaven. There is access to God. And it's like Jacob says, yeah, that's great, God. And if that really happens, then you'll be my God. <laughs> it's like. Dump of water on this, on Jacob. You know, this, this guy is unusable. Seems unusable. And so he goes on his way. Uh, and then, and, and the next word he gets is right here in Genesis 31 verse 3. And God says, it's time to go home. It's time to go back to the land that I promised you to go. And consequently, things get very difficult between him and Laban. He asks his wives, wives, what do y'all think about this? And the wife says, that's just fine because you know what? Laban's been duping us and, and, and we see that in this chapter that things are just difficult. You'll find that when God, it, God's gracious in this way, when he calls you to leave somewhere, sometimes he makes it difficult where you're at so it's a lot easier to leave. That's kind of, I've seen how God has done that in my life in times past and, and he seems to have done that in Jacob's uh, life as well. And so we, that's where we come to, verse 17. And so, in honor of this passage, let's stand as we read verse 17, going through verse 55, the end of this chapter. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove, all, he drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Padan Aran, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. 
Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household's gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he tended to flee. He fled with all that he had and rose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him, preceded him for seven days and followed close after him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean and dreamed by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourines and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons, my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you've longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of her kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and to the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot arise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods what you have found of all your household goods. Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by a wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day the heat consumed me, and by cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father and the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom you have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jigar Shadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid. And Mitzvah, for he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we were out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see... God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I've set before you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and the pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. 
They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. You may be seated. And finally, Jacob and Laban end their tumultuous relationship. They have been blessed by one another and cursed by one another. And it finally comes to an end. The larger lesson in all this is that God is separating his people. There are a separation, you notice in this covenant at the end, there's an emphasis on two, two separate things, two separate people. The Jews will be separate from the Aramans. Abraham's lot will be separated from Nahar, his brother. And so that is one of the larger themes in this passage of how God is working to bring his Redeemer. Separating. But I want us to concentrate on the sub-lesson here. And that is the lesson that God is working in Jacob's life. And it's simply this. Trust in him. Trust in him. And we, and we have this interesting, well, contrast. We've got this little passage about Rachel stealing the family gods. And I, I ask myself, why is this included in this passage? It's not necessarily given just to reflect about Rachel's spirit and demeanor at this time. It, it does tell about her. But it's also a larger lesson about God. It is a contrast between the gods of this world and the God who made this world. And so that is one of the lessons that Jacob is going to be learning here. And hopefully we will be learning too. There are two main lessons that we'll, that we'll point out. And they all relate to that. So first as we, as we look here, we start verse 17. We find that uh, verse 17 is given to let us know in verse 18, Jacob is doing well. He's got a lot of stuff. And when he departs from Laban's camp, a lot goes with him. And so that's given and it's spelled out for us in verse 18. But verse 19 tells us a little bit of something about how this has taken place. It's good. Jacob's leaving home. Are leaving toward home. It's the command of God. Good, Jacob. Verse 19. Jacob, now Laban had gone to shear sheep. Rachel stole the household idols with her father's. Bad, Rachel. All right. Verse 20. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell them that he tended to flee. Bad, Jacob. All right. Good, you're going home. Bad, Jacob, and how you're doing it. All right. Bad, Rachel, and what you did. All right. And so that's that's kind of the, the main lesson here. And what's so bad about this? Well, he he works. So he has all his men busy away from camp where Laban is doing his work shearing the sheep. It takes about three days for him to do that. Jacob is aware of this. And instead of being upfront and honest, he just kind of sneaks behind Laban's back and takes all of his possessions, which was a good bit of the camp there. And he steals away. It's interesting the words here. So he has all his men. Rachel stole the household idols. And then verse 20 the literal phrase there, Jacob, is literally still stole the heart away from Laban. Isn't that true? Rachel steals the gods of Laban, but Jacob steals the heart of Laban. That's, that's the literal wording of, of that, that phrase that Jacob fled away or Jacob stole away. And he stole his heart while Laban was unaware. Why did you do that? We're going to find out why he does that. And so he starts his journey. He goes down. He's going down to the uh, south 
uh, western from southwestern part. So he has all his men. Gilead is a range of mountains uh, in what we know as today as Jordan and in Syria. And he's coming across that, that mountain range. It's, it's right before you come to the Jordan River. And so uh, it's, it's kind of in between. He's in this Gilead mountain range. And there is when Laban finds out, hey, you know what? He comes home and the camp, the, the camp is empty. His, the, the So he has all his men. Cattle, the camels, there's a lot more the diminished. And he says, what's happened? He found out what's happened. And now he's going after and he catches up. And it takes about 10 days altogether uh, from Jacob's journey uh, for them to catch up together. And we have that given to us in, in verse 23. So he has all his men. And so on the way, you notice verse 24, he's got his men with him. What's his intent? He's got all his kinfolk. The gods are, his gods are gone, his cattle's gone, his daughter's gone. He wants to bring them back and he thinks, I might need force. So he has all his men with him. Who knows what his intention was, but verse 24, God puts a stop to it. Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. It's reminiscent of Isaac and Abimelech and Abraham and Abimelech. How, how God had uh, gave a word to protect his line. It says, be careful, don't curse him. Don't curse them. Why? Because Genesis twelve three, if you curse him, God will curse you. God is is giving a word of warning uh, to Laban. So verse twenty five, Laban catches up with him in the mountain range. Verse twenty six, we have the dialogue, the confrontation between Laban and Jacob. And, and notice he, he plays the part. Laban plays the part of the uh, the loving grandfather and and trying to be all sentimental about this, but it does not smack of sincerity. All right. Notice what he says. You've taken away like like you're raiding our camp, taking them by sword. You've stolen from me. Uh, now notice it says what it says, verse twenty-seven. For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. You get that? I think Jacob was just thinking, yeah, right, right. Because you know we get it from the history. That's not the nature of Laban. At this point, there, in fact, the beginning of the chapter talks about how there are just animosity between them. And that he's now got a, a, a disapproval look every time he sees Jacob. And he talks about celebrating. Uh, you know, he's celebrating his leaving, but not celebrating him. And, so, and he says, and you didn't allow me to kiss my sons and daughters. You've done foolishly. He's speaking down to them. And it's in my power to do you harm. I was, in other words, I was going to hurt you. But God of your father stopped me. He intervened. And now, verse 30, he gets right to the heart. He says, now, you've surely gone away because you have great long for your father's house. In other words, it's understandable. You want to go home. But why did you steal my gods? I think here at the end, he gets to the real reason why Laban is pursuing Jacob. It's not just because I want to kiss, kiss Rachel and kiss Leah and kiss my grandchildren. Where's my God? <laughs> That's a tough question to ask, isn't it? I mean, isn't it bad when you lose your God? That's not a good thing. I mean, you lose your keys, lose your phone, yeah, even lose your car, but lose your God? Man, you're in a bad strait if you have to lose your God. And so that's exactly where he's at. And so he's searching, where, where are my gods? And then we find that uh, Jacob, he kind of, from a weak position, is answering the question, verse 31. He says, well, you know what? He gives his reason. I was afraid. I was afraid. Why did I steal away? Why did I sneak away? Why did I wait till you were going to be gone for three days and move all my camp? Because I was afraid. There was a dread 
in my heart. What was he afraid of? Well, he was afraid, as he says, that perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. So he lets us know he is operating out of fear, out of dread. Now, so he explains that. And then, he, and then he denies stealing anything and explains this that Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. And so he invites him, search my camp. See if there's anything here that you can find. And so he searches throughout. And, of course, doesn't find anything. But notice the order in verse 33. What's the order that, that Laban searches in? He starts with Jacob's tent. Why? Because he thinks Jacob is the culprit. Why? Because he spent 20 years with Jacob. He knows how Jacob works. He always works within, just slightly within the realm of legality. Technically, he's always right. Technically, he's always good. But he's found that there's shades of gray within this technical world. And he's always operating within this. And so he's like, you know what? If anybody's stolen, it's probably Jacob. Let me look in his tent first. And then he goes and to Leah's tent. And it's just interesting the order that he goes in. And then the two maids' tents. And then he looks at Rachel's tent last. And it's as if that's the last person, last place that he'll look. It's the last person he thinks of. And lo and behold, it's Rachel. Which, by the way, if you remember as we go back, I don't think that it was God's direction for him to marry Rachel. Why? <laughs> because that would have been his second wife. And God says, one woman, one, one wife, one man. From the very beginning. And so here we have Rachel bringing in some interesting elements into the household. And that is a tendency toward these gods. We don't know the reasons why. Some, some people argue that, well, these gods were, were the signs that you had claim to the inheritance. And it could be that Rachel is, is a little bit chafed about the fact that, that she never got her dower. And that the father spent it all, never gave her an inheritance. So she steals it away in hopes that she can go back and lay claim to the property of Laban. Perhaps that was true. Perhaps she just had a hard time letting go of worshiping this idol. Nonetheless, she steals it. She takes it away. And then there's a little bit of levity in this. uh, And how Rachel is hiding these idols. And that puts it underneath her on the camel. And says, in the way of women is is with me. And y'all understand what that means. And and so she says, you know, I'm just not going to get up. And all the while it's there. Any God you have to sit on. To protect. Probably isn't worthy of worship. You know. But nonetheless. That's what she does. And in that light moment. In scripture. Is a very serious truth. It's simply this. If we worship gods. It's up to us. To sustain our life. If we worship gods. Lowercase. It's up to us. To sustain our life. That's what Laban's doing. Someone stole his gods. He's got to fight for them. Rachel. Is worshiping these gods. She's got to hide them. And hoping that they won't be found out. Isn't it interesting? It's not just sustaining their own life. But sustaining the life of the gods. You know. It's, it's like if that's not hard enough. I, now i got to protect these gods. You remember, yeah, I found that with traditions. We have to fight more. When we have just traditions as to why we do what we do. I have a tradition of um, washing the car without soap. I don't know why. It's just that that's how my dad did it. 
And we did it every week. And we washed the car without soap. And of course, you know, I'd, as I get older and start washing cars with other guys, and they're like, why aren't you using soap? So I don't know. I just don't want to use soap. It's tradition. And, and they would start arguing with me about the merits of using soap and washing the car. And it's understandable. But I still didn't want to do it. You know why? Because that's not how dad did it. And I'd get all adamant. It's like, I don't want to. You're just wasting your money. I just do all this stuff. You know, I get all adamant because that's the only defense I had. <laughs> the only way I could defend my position was just to, to argue it more aggressively. <laughs> that's how we are when all we have is tradition. I mean, what are you going to point to as to why you do it other than just tradition? And you, and you fight up. Fight up real hard for it. But when you do it for a real reason, you don't have to fight for it. You say, you know what? You can be wrong if you want to. <laughs> but I'm, I know what's right. And I'm going to do what's right. You stick to your traditions? Fine. It doesn't bother me. I know why I do what I do. And so you've got this going on with Rachel and Laban. Why are they worshiping these gods? There's nothing behind it. And so all they can do is just fight aggressively for it. You know what? I don't have to defend God. Do you understand that? You don't have to defend God. Now, if I worship Allah, maybe so. Maybe I would have to fight and persuade nations by my military might so that nations would bow down to Allah. But with God, the God of the Bible, there is no need to fight to defend God. He is capable to defend himself. Our job, live what you know is true. But here's the point I want you to understand. You could be also like Jacob. Jacob, he knows about God. He's had a moment with God. But yet he's not living for God. And instead of following not just God's way, he takes God's direction. He says, okay, let me figure out how to do it my own way. Because his God wasn't these little idols that Rachel was sitting on and that Laban was looking for. You know what his God was? Himself. Himself. He said, okay, this is right. I'm going to figure out how I'm going to do it. And it's going to be up to me and my wits and my shrewd abilities to get these things done. That's where we often fall in, is it not? We know what's right and wrong. But we feel like it's up to our abilities to ensure these things happen. In our family, in our workplace, in our government, and in our own life. And that's the point that God is working on in Jacob's life. Jacob is fighting with God. If we worship gods, it's up to us to sustain our life. But in this story, there is another option given. And Jacob hadn't got a clue yet. He hadn't uh, locked in on this. He's starting to, but he's not locked in on it yet. And that's simply this. If we worship God, he will sustain us. If we worship God, he will sustain us. Now, here is a blessed truth right here. And it just dawned on me as I was, watching, as I was thinking about this passage. Jacob's not really acknowledging God as his king and lord. He's going to, the next chapter, he's going to battle out with God. But that didn't keep God from sustaining him. <laughs> hey man, that did not keep God from sustaining him. All along, we've got this stubborn, 
man named Jacob fending for himself. God told him to leave his home. Instead of just leaving his home, telling, uh, telling Laban about it and letting God deal with Laban's heart, he tries to sneak his way as he's done with his birthright, as he's done with his own blessings. And that's been the way of Jacob's life all along the way, getting by on his wits and his shrewd abilities, not trusting in God. And he does it one more time. And God says, you know what? I'm still going to sustain him. Think about it. What does Jacob have? Well, here was an angry uncle ready to kill him, ready to do him harm. And God intervenes in a dream and a message, tells him, don't harm him. All the stuff that, that's with Jacob, all those camels and all that stuff with him, how did he get that? He thought, well, maybe it was because I was stripping bark and putting it in front of the sheep. And they were multiplying in a way that would benefit me. God said, no, it has anything to do with your stripped bark. It has everything to do with God blessing him. And so as he looked around at the blessings, he realized it was of the Lord. As he looked and saw tents of kids, children, his own children, how did he get these children? Was it because of the mandrakes that Rachel was, was eating? No. The Bible says it was because God opened up the womb and blessed him. And so he saw his children. He saw the, the blessings around him. He sees that he's still alive and Laban hasn't killed him. The, the fact that he got to Laban to begin with in that long journey, God's hand was on him. God was sustaining him all along the way. I venture, if you look back in your life, you'll find ways that God was protecting you and you did not even know it when you look back in your life how god was preparing your heart for the word of god and jesus christ and you didn't even know it i challenge you if you've not done this in your life do it go home and look back and all the points of your life how god has worked in your life to bring you to the point that you're in right now so that you're able to worship God, knowing that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Redeemer. It's marvelous to do. As you look and see how in mysterious ways, ways unknown to you. And here's the encouraging thing. If God has done that in your past, if God did that with Jacob, what do you think God's doing right now? How do you think he's working right now? Maybe in that area that you find extremely miserable right now. It could very well be that as you look back 10, 15 years from, from now, look back on this point in time, you'd say, you know what? I didn't even know it, but God was at work through that person. That person that I really don't like. God was at work through that circumstance that I found extremely difficult. God was at work. And now I understand things that I could not have understood before. When Jacob looked back with Laban, I imagine he did not do it with fond memories. And, oh, that was just sweet moments. He would look back and think, oh. You remember, in fact, you remember how Jacob did look back on his life? At the end when he was talking to Potiphar. He said, my life has been short and troublesome. <laughs> troublesome. But all along the way, God was bringing about, through Jacob, a redeemer. And so... They have it out. He says, you search through the households. They couldn't find it. And so verse 36, Jacob releases. I mean, after 20 
years, the Bible says Jacob was angry. You know what another word for that would be? Incensed. He was furious. <laughs> all right. And so he justifies this. All right. This has been a long time coming, but here it is, Laban. Here are all the faults that you've done toward me. And so he starts listing them out. He says, look, your brother's judged before me. What's, what's before you? What's, what have you brought up that is yours? Nothing is there. And he starts listing out all the difficulties of the last 20 years, verse 30, and verse 38. If you ever wanted to be a shepherd, you read this and you realize, eh, it really wasn't all that great. Out by the sun of day, out by the cold by night, facing the wild animals, and you know, his wages were changing them on time after time. He says, you know what, if it wasn't for God, verse 42, <laughs> if it wasn't for God, not your God that you're looking for, but the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, I would have been done in by you. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob is starting to get a clue. If it wasn't for God, I would not be able to be in the state where I am. He's not yet, he's not yet to the point where he's acknowledging the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac, or the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac as his God, his Elohim yet, but he's getting there. Verse 43, he said, no, these daughters are my daughters. All these children, these flocks, they were mine. Now, therefore, come, let us make a covenant. In other words, we're going to agree to disagree on this little point. And we're going to make a covenant never to harm one another. All right? I don't trust you, Jacob. And Jacob, you don't really trust me. So what do we do when we don't trust one another? We trust in our God. We trust in our God. So let us make a swear before God that if you come over to harm me, may God judge you. And they said that it has two purposes in this, in this covenant that they make. One is to set a boundary. One is, to, one is to set a boundary. And two, to remember something. A boundary between the Arameans and thus the people of the Jews are separated from Laban, Nahor, and Abraham's brothers. They're separate from this point on. And then something to remember this treaty with. We're not to harm one another. It's, it's kind of interesting, this covenant that they make. He, he says, uh, as we keep on reading, he says, I want you to, to agree, verse 50, if you afflict my daughters or if you take otherwise besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. If you take any other wives beyond my daughters. I thought that's interesting, Laban, <laughs> because Jacob has already taken on two other wives while he was there with you, Laban. And we see a little bit of the hypocrisy of, of Laban in all this. It's like his eyes are blind to what has already happened within his own daughter's homes. But he says, if you take any other wives, then let God be a judge between you and me, how you're mistreating them. Laban said, all right, here's this heap and here's the pillar. In other words, they have two piles, all right? One is one stone, the stone of Jacob that he erects. I think it symbolizes one God, uh, one memorial to one God. And then you have all the other men, Laban and his men. They all bring stones together, each representing each person as a witness to this time. But I think also it speaks to the plurality of, the, of their gods. And so you have one stone and then a pile of stones, a carn, if you will, uh, that is a memorial not to a dead person, but a memorial to a treaty. And he says, let's call this Galid or Jigar Saradutha. 
uh, depending on what language, language you're speaking, uh, Galid and Gilead, uh, which means is a, a witness, and then Mitzpah, which means a watchtower or a guard post. And so you've got this witness, this watchtower, this boundary to protect each one, and then a reminder of a treaty that we've made. A lot of times we use that word mitzvah today. It's kind of gotten popularized in some of the jewelry as, as a nice, loving, trusting relationship that this is a watchtower between, between you and me. But when we read the Bible, it's really it's because they didn't trust one another that we have this watchtower. And so they call upon this God, their God, uh, to be a mitzvah, a watchtower watch between these two. And so they have a mill to remember this time and seal this deal with. But notice the terminology again in verse 53. The God of Abraham, Laban's talking, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judged between us. They're not talking about one God. They're talking about the God of Nahor being different from the God of Abraham. Because the word judge is plural. There's more than one God in question here. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That, that's used as a, a synonym for the name of God. God nowhere in scripture identifies himself as the fear of Isaac. Where did Jacob get this? He probably got it from Isaac. My fear. Let's go sacrifice my fear to my, worship my fear today. Isn't that an interesting terminology? But for Isaac, you remember how one of his first introductions with God was on the sacrifice that Abraham was to offer up and he was saved just barely by uh, an angel from him being a sacrifice. And then we find that God instills fear in the opponents of Isaac as they go on. And so Jacob is hearkening back, remembering how God dealt with Isaac and instilled fear in his opponents. And so he's saying, yes, God has done that with me as well. And early in the morning, Laban rose and kissed his son and daughters and blessed them. Laban departed and returned to his place. Laban departed. All his gods, save one, they can't find. Rachel continues on with her hidden God. And Jacob continues on with a struggle, a fight between him and God. And it's all going to come to a climax in this next chapter. But let me ask you, how do you walk away from here? How do you return to your place? Are there many gods? Let me assure you how I know that God is not God of your life. When we fill our life with worry, it is a sure sign that God is not reigning in our heart. (laughs) How do you say that? I I didn't say that. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't worry. If you are worrying, then you are like the Gentiles. In other words, you are like the pagans. You are like those people who worship many God's because they do not believe that their God is capable of caring for them. Do you walk away like Laban, like Rachel? Are you fending for yourself? As you approach this year, you're you're wringing your hands and figuring out how we're going to make it through this year. Are we like Jacob? We know what we ought to be doing. We know the right thing to do, but we're still we're still figuring out how it's up to us to get it done. Let me assure you, if God's given you direction in your life, 
He will accomplish it in your life. You just honor him. Worship him in every area of your life. Jesus said this way in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Some of you are struggling with that concept. Let me assure you. God will allow that struggle to continue until you surrender. But you will save yourself a good bit of struggle if you just surrender now. And don't let the struggle continue. How do you walk away and return to your place? Like Laban with many gods? With Rachel with with a hidden God that you don't want anyone to see? Are you like Jacob struggling with God? There's another alternative. And just walk out here worshiping God. And watch how God will sustain you in your life in 2009. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that when we seek you, that you put a watch over us. You put a watchtower over us, Lord. So that if we seek you, your kingdom, your righteousness, you've promised all these things will be added to you, unto us. In other words, you will take care of all that's needed for us just to follow you and to worship you. Father, that if we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our king, not a king, but our king, we will have the confidence that you, our God, will supply all of our need according to your riches and glory through your son, Jesus, our Lord. Father, we thank you that if we will acknowledge you as Lord and King, that if we will pray to you, if we will thank you as rightfully uh, as we do to our King, and bring our petitions to you, that your peace, a peace that surpasses any kind of human comprehension, will guard our heart and mind through your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Lord, as we enter 2009, I pray that we do not do so with dread, but do so worshiping you. Not because we have to sustain our life and the gods that we believe in, but because we believe in you, our God, and that you will sustain our life. Because there is a Redeemer. Because regardless... One way or the other, in this life, we will confront something that we cannot deal with, death. Lord, may we worship you, you and you alone, who can carry us through death and bring us to eternal life. We pray this in your name. Amen. I simply invite you to make Jesus your God this morning.